0: Before you even get to the craft of writing, it is knowing the sort of uh, more complicated side of writing, the darker side of writing, the, you know, this this whole idea that um, a a writing career isn't linear, that, you know, just because you get your first published, it doesn't mean the next six are going to get published and really being honest with people about the expectations. And it's a hard thing to tell people you could do everything right and still fail.
1: What Were You Thinking? The podcast that goes beyond the pages of the books we love. I'm your host, Dana Goldstein, and I invite you to join me as we ask authors to share the story behind their stories. Well, hello everybody, and welcome to a brand new episode of What Were You Thinking? I'm your host, Dana Goldstein, and today I am speaking with Allie Bryan. Now listen, If you are a writer or if you're an aspiring writer or a published writer, it doesn't really matter. What you will glean from this episode, you're probably gonna wanna save it for later because she gives so much information about the practicality of being a writer, especially somebody who has written many books. If you're struggling with your writing, if you're questioning, why the hell am I doing this? If you're just frustrated with the inability to find a place for your story or stories to be published, you want to tune in. Allie talks about the struggle to sell stories and how it's ongoing, and she talks about her process. I'm telling you, you're going to get so much out of this episode. So without further ado, here is Allie Bryan, author, teacher, and just a really amazing person to know. I don't even know where to start because I I loved the figs. That's when it was that was like my first exposure to Allie Bryan. And um now I've read uh uh Roost and is it it's Cock, right? Cock, yeah. Cock. Oh, okay, we're going all in. We're going, we're
0: going. Yes. Makes and people very uncomfortable. And yeah. I felt about a prude, and then I say it and I sort of like turn red. So I'm like, I got to practice saying this before the book
1: launches. Right? No kidding. And uh, Crow Valley, it's Crow Valley Karaoke Championship. Correct. Okay, good. Got it. And you have a third book coming out this year. Is that correct? Or did you just, sign- okay. So I'm not sure. I know that you signed three deals in one year. Correct. And are all those books coming out this year? Yes. Okay. So,
0: So, Cock comes out first. It comes out May 1st. And then the Crow Valley Karaoke Championships comes out at the end of July. I believe July 25th is the release date. And then The City, which is book two in the Hill series, will come out in November of 2023. And then the follow-up to that, the third and final book will come out either 2024 or 2025. And then I have a young adult contemporary novel called Takedown, which will
1: come out in 2024. Holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I, I have, we have to like go back in time because you were not this hugely prolific writer originally. Your original gig was marketing and mm-hmm. personal training right mm-hmm. yep so can you take us through that evolution because let me just say for listeners who are not familiar with ally bryan if you, if you read any kind of literary magazine or are involved in the writing community especially here in calgary you cannot not come across your name your byline somewhere and to pen three deals in one year and then write those three books and Moving on to the next one and the next one, like, I just, I'm in awe. That's all I have to say. Thanks for coming out. (laughs) Well, thank
0: you. That's, that is um, a lovely reception. Uh, So where did that, how and why did that happen? Well, I feel I was always sort of that prolific. I write a lot and I write fast. Um, It was more that I had a stockpile of manuscripts and I think they just sort of magically hit at all the right time. So Crow Valley, I actually had started a a long time ago. And uh, I got to a point where my third manuscript did not sell. Uh, It was an adult contemporary novel, and it got very close in the US and had some love, which was great south of the border, but in the end, it didn't sell. So I was writing Crow Valley and I was entertaining myself and thought it was a great, funny little story. And I got to the climax and I thought, I don't even know what is supposed to happen at this point. And so at that point I actually hired an editor and I said, just tell me what's wrong. I don't need the praise. I don't need a, you know, little head pet. I need to know what I am doing wrong because I need to fix this process or I need to do something different. Um, Because it was, it was hard. You know, you have two books published, you assume that success is going to continue and it didn't. So I kind of went back to the drawing board and I worked with Sandra McIntyre and she sat down with me and said, okay, you know, I'm at page 180 and I still have no idea what it is Brett wants. So she just kind of picked out one of the characters. So I worked with her and I, I, that really revolutionized my approach to writing um, because I always sort of wrote intuitively um but early in my career i didn't necessarily have the craft or the skill to back that up so you know i'd end up with these ridiculously messy first drafts and i'd be you know really trying to figure out what the heck i was doing in the first place and to make it look like i knew what i was doing in the first place so um i really spent a lot of time on that novel after that initial meeting with sandra and really changed my thought process on how i approach story and as soon as i did that all the books came really quickly after that. So it was really honing my process to the point where I could knock off a book in three months, which sounds ridiculous, but I could, you know, maybe not three months for all of them, but between this three to six months, I could write an 80,000 word novel and have it almost be publishable on the first go.
1: Okay. Now listen, before you start to kick yourself, and punish yourself for not producing at that level. You need to listen to what Ali has to say about how quickly she can write a book.
0: But that comes from those years of experience and trial and error and writing and then going back and, and seeing how I could get better. I didn't want to become one of those writers that was either mid-list for life and just never kind of grew. I wanted to grow and expand and get better. Um, and I needed to try and figure out, like, how can I... Um, like, move up from sort of small press, per se, how can I grow my audience, and that really took examining my craft, uh, looking at my process, seeing what I needed to do to grow um, as an author, and to kind of learn how to write better, so um, I ended up writing a lot, once I sort of figured out a formula that kind of worked for me, and it's very simple, it was uh, looking at character as plot, so in the past, I would, the plot was always the most challenging thing for me mm-hmm. because I am intuitive. So, you know, usually plotters, they, they think and they they will outline and I could not do that. And every time <laughs> I tried to do that, I would fail miserably. Um, but by looking simply at plot as the character making choices regarding things they want and things they need really changed my, my practice. And then uh, the other thing I always say, especially after not getting my third book published, is I kind of rage wrote. I was like, I'll show you not to take my work. And so I just wrote and wrote and wrote. And through that process of continual writing, of course, it got better. It's just it's sort of that. That you, know, that you put the time and you put the hours in, your craft is likely going to improve just from the practice of it. So for sure, I did that and I wrote some more and the more people said no, no, the more I wrote. So eventually I had all these manuscripts piled wow. up and was ready to pitch them and they were better because I'd put the time in and had kind of improved my
1: craft. I'm glad that you mentioned the multiple manuscripts, because how long did you have these manuscripts sitting in a drawer? And when did you know that it was time to bring them out and revisit them and polish them up?
0: Yeah, well, with the the karaoke championships, I'd written again this early draft, probably back, I think it was like maybe 2016-ish that I started it. And, um, but then in the meantime, The Hill was published. That was that came out sort of during the pandemic. So I was busy sort of, you know, finishing off that book and promoting it. And really, again, just sort of taking my time with Crow Valley, um, you know, going back and revising it. And then I just kind of got to the point where I'd, you know, several, uh, you know, it had gone through my critique group, I'd workshopped it through them, I felt really confident. And then I went back to Sandra, who was the one who sort of revitalized or kind of reformed my writing practice to begin with. And so she kind of took an edit. And then, um, then I sent it to my agent, who, funny enough, I don't think was a a big fan of, of Girl Valley when it first came in, it was, um, you know, I knew that it was potentially a harder sell just because it had five point of views. And um, editors seem to either really love that or loathe it. It's kind of like, cilantro that way. Like you're either you're all in or you're not. Um, so I knew that would be a bit of a challenge. And, um, but I did a lot. I really, I spent a lot of time preparing that work for submission, um, on the marketing side of things. Actually, I had read sort of everything that came out and in and around 2019, this is around the time I was about to pitch it 2020. And what were the the top selling humor fiction in the U S what were the top selling humor fiction by women Um, and really looking at comparables. And I really felt I knew my comparables for this piece, and then I was lucky enough that uh, Shits Creek had won a bunch of Golden Globes, and that was sort of an early comparison. So, you know, when I did eventually send it out to my agent, I think it, I said, "Like, we need to capitalize on the the sort of success. It's kind of that Canadian small town. It's quirky. Um, it's not. I mean, there's it, it's there's a lot of dark in it, but it's not really harsh like some." Uh, comedy can be, and I think that's sort of a Canadian thing, a Canadian sensibility. And so I kind of knew it was the timing was right. Plus, we'd just been through this, you know, ridiculous pandemic. Everyone's miserable. A lot of what we were hearing, feeling, reading, seeing was quite dark. And I knew that it was a good time to be sending out a book that was hopeful and was funny, yet uh, that people could still sort of relate to and identify with. And then with cock it was weird because I kind of had finished Crow Valley at this point and I
1: had never really felt finished with roost. Okay. Um, See, I'm glad you say that. Cause that's one of my questions is okay. like, was the, in, there always the intention to do a sequel to roost, but clearly not.
0: No, they're not okay. really, It really wasn't a clear intention. I found that um, my ending was scaled back Quite a bit from my original ending, which I was okay with. I was a a baby writer, I was brand new. It was my first book. And so I remember at the time my editor, um, Robin Reed, was like, I think the book actually ends here, which was quite a bit earlier than what I had initially intended. And I think what that did is it didn't give people a lot of closure. Like people still had questions um, uh, for Claudia or about Claudia afterward. And, you know, the book sat for almost nine years. And then I looked at the calendar and I thought, okay, the 10th anniversary of that book is coming out. And, you know, people, I was still finding readers for it. And I was still, it's one of the books I get the most emails from readers on. And uh, so that was weird to me that a book had been out for, you know, eight or nine years at that point, and I was still getting um, emails from readers. So, Kind of started thinking about it again, and I, and people had asked me in the past would I ever do a sequel, and I was no, not really interested. I'd moved on to other characters and other stories, and then I, I just knew like the plot came to me, which is totally bizarre because again, plots, my like I don't I don't do plot, and it's the last thing that usually I can work out. But I kind of knew where the book started, and then I just boom, I just sat down one day and and I wrote it, and I actually sold it, um, on spec, which is really rare with fiction. I think I'd written a chapter, um, but going back to the previous publisher made that an easy thing, you know, and, and being able to have a a conversation about what I, what my vision was for the book. And it was just, yeah, it was probably the easiest book I've ever written. And I loved it. I had fun every step of the way. It was, it was just a fun project.
1: Yeah. I'm glad you wrote it because it, it, it gives readers closure, right? To that whole, cycle that she she's been through and and your characters in every single book are so human and I love that they're even if their lives are so far removed from mine everybody can identify with them what Mm. is your secret sauce for for nailing humanity Oh, it's probably (laughs) because I spent a lot
0: of time thinking about what it means to be human. Um, You know, I I think I grew up in the 90s where uh, I was certainly told to, you know, dream big and believe in your dreams and you can do it all and you can have it all and all these great things. And I really believe that. And then I peaked in childhood. (laughs) I really do feel I peaked in childhood. So it's all gone downhill after that. So that's uh you know something that i've always thought about is what happens when life doesn't turn out the way you expected and and i like to call that sort of the grief of living you know and so i kind of just over the last probably 5 or so years i've just been really thinking about those questions about what it means to be human and what happens when you think your life is going to go one way and it doesn't or what happens when um you know you might be doing all the right things or making the right decisions, but it doesn't mean that the, your environment or circumstance or other people in your lives can not change on a dime. So I just kind of became obsessed with those sort of storylines and I feel personally way more interested in the ordinary than I do, you know, the people that we tend to raise up on a pedestal in society. So I'm a big fan of things like humans in New York I love those stories because they're real people and they are extraordinary, you know? So I, those are the people that I want to hear about. I want to hear about the, like the everyday, um, you know, getting, getting through to the end and and despite maybe some of the challenges. So I feel I, I observe a lot of um, the way we are. And I, I study a lot of philosophy. I love reading (laughs) philosophy. So you'll probably notice there's a bit of, that sort of interwoven. And I think that helps me understand humans. And I read a ton about human behavior and psychology and biology. And uh, yeah, so hopefully I that has influenced the way I'm able to write character. And you know, really getting in inside inside their heart and inside their heads, I think is is important um, in order for them to be realistic. And you know, even if like you said, you don't always have to have that same experience. So, you know, you might, and this is the difference sort of between plot and theme, you know, you might never have found yourself in a situation where you're looking after your father, who's a hoarder, but you can associate or identify with the anxiety that that character must feel having this huge burden and also dealing with the loss of her mother, Mm -hmm. you know, or yes, you don't have to necessarily know the experience, but what you can identify is, is with the feeling. And those are just the basic feelings of being human.
1: When did you realize that it was time to transition into full-time writing? And how did that go? Um, it, it went well, actually. I sort of
0: was getting to a point where I felt like I had done everything that I could to be a quote-unquote successful writer. You know, I spent a lot of time actually physically writing, you know, so I am one of those people who would get up every day, probably for the last... Almost 20 years. Get up at five o'clock. Write as long as I can. Rarely take time off. So really, just focusing. So I, I did the writing. Uh, when I found my book didn't sell, like my third book, I went back and like went back to craft. Went back to the basics. What can I do better? What am I doing wrong? How can I improve? You know, hiring editors. Really making sure I understood what I needed to do to elevate my craft. Um, I've always been involved in the writing community. It's it is it's you know part of my. I think a, a job, um, as a writer, but also just, those are my people, so to speak. So yeah, it felt like I'm doing all the right things and I could not get past a small press in Canada and it's not to dish ditch, you know, um, small presses They're They're fantastic. And freehand has been my, my lifeline in Canada. It's the only publisher um, other than DCB, which has picked up my my contemporary YA, YA novel that's coming out in 2024. So I'm completely indebted um, to small press, but I wanted a career as a writer. I wanted to get to that next level. And I was in a total conundrum because my sales, though really you know decent sales for a small press and the critical acclaim that I had, like my book said, won some awards, yeah. you know, was shortlisted for the Leacock. Um, despite that, I still did not have the privilege of continuous publishing. And that was really a hard thing for me to swallow. So it didn't matter luck, grit, hard work. I did everything I could. So I actually kind of said to myself, I'm I'm giving it a year. I'm going to put everything into writing for a year, like solid and treat it really as a full-time job. And if at the end of it, I still cannot get published, or I can't get to that sort of next level, um, I'm done, I'm going to go back and find, you know, you know, either start a new career, go retrain, go back into personal training, go back into marketing. And, and I, it was almost down to the wire, like almost to the day that I made that decision (laughs) that I sold uh, the Crow Valley Karaoke Championships to a big five US press. So wow. yeah, it was, but it was a lot of writing. I just kind of went for it. I thought this is the time, and you want to kind of build on the momentum. And I started having all these short pieces published. And again, not in Canada, but my a lot of my success was coming south of the border, um, which is really gratifying to me because it's like, yeah, I can't can't, can't kind of break this, um, can't really break into my own market. But I was having success in a much larger market. So that was, um, very validating, I think. And then to get this big five was fantastic because one of the things that the Canadian large presses were turned off against was the fact that I had small press sales. Hmm. So even though they liked the book, they were not willing to take a chance on it. And yet south of the border, it was a completely different reception and they just loved the story. That's what they kept telling me over and over when I first met the editor, the acquiring editors. We love this story. It made us feel good at the end. It's the timing is right in terms of where we're at in in, uh, in history. And they've just put everything behind it. So
1: it's cool. fantastic. I'm going to be super nosy and ask. Mm-hmm. So during that year, how mm-hmm. did how did you support yourself? Because as we all know, it's hard to get paid a living wage as a writer until you oh, start 100%. selling
0: yeah um I did gosh it's fuzzy because I'm like what year was which year <laughs> at this point um I've always done well first of all I do have a partner who is a the primary um he has the primary income in the family and we've kind of supported each other over the years like when I when we started our careers. I had a career, he was still going through his master's and doing his um, accounting certification. So I kind of supported him early. And then um, part of my transition into personal training and doing fitness for well over a decade was that was how I supported writing on the side is like, you know, I didn't have to work as many hours and I could still sort of raise my kids. So certainly my partner um, has been a great support um but i've always take i've always taken on uh, like teaching opportunities mm-hmm. uh, so t- t- like taught a lot of classes i did actually make some income from writing i've been fortunate enough to get grants um over you know over the course of my writing career so it's kind of a combination of all those free um but i'm at a point now where like I never thought there was such thing as writing full-time there. It's, it's a thing like I have three books coming out. Like there was a lot of editing, a lot of rewriting, revising, you know, promo marketing um, just things like this. Like there it's, it's sort of constant and then asked to do sort of presentations or writer in residence gigs. I was fortunate enough to be the writer in residence at the Calgary public library and a yeah. uh, virtual writer in residence at Wilfrid Laurier university. So certainly those opportunities, you know, made it viable for me to, to sort of commit to writing. And I don't know if I'll stay because the one thing I've learned is that um, a writing career is not linear in any shape or form. So I'm going to, you know, ride out these next, I have books that I have coming out in the next two years, but that could be it. Like who knows? You just, you really don't know what the industry is going to do or how the market's going to change or, or whether I'll still fit in it in any capacity. So I'm enjoying it while it lasts, but I could still have another career after this. We'll see. For sure. So
1: how do you juggle, how do you juggle all the different projects going on at the same time between the teaching and the novels and the, um, the articles for journals and magazines? What is it what is a, yeah, what is a day all of... in
0: Allie's life look like? <laughs> oh gosh, my it's funny that you should ask that because I just was like I just did an interview for the Calgary Guardian, which is sort of an online art, well it's an online paper for the city of Calgary, but it, there's a big focus on the arts and they asked for a day in the life. Um, but it was cool because it was kind of through pictures.
1: It was a really delightful little piece and I am going to post a link to it in the show notes.
0: My husband actually submitted the bio because that was one of the conditions you could not submit your own bio. <gasps> it couldn't be anything that existed. Cool. And the whole thing was a day in the life. And it was like so mean, but also very funny and 100% true. So I get up at usually at 450 in the morning and I drive to Tim Hortons, which is ridiculous, but it's become such a ritual that I can't, I just, I have to do it. And I get out, and it doesn't matter if it's minus 40. I get up at that time and I go get a coffee. I actually buy three coffees, which is another long story. And, <laughs> um, but I love it. And now when I drive up to the Tim's, depending on who's working, I and I can tell by their voices, I just say three coffees and they know exactly what to make. And I go home with my three coffees one of it, one's for him, two are for me. And then I, I'm most, Um, prolific my favorite time to write is in that quiet space in the morning it's just me I write in the dark which is ridiculous it drives my husband crazy he gets up and he's like why are you sitting in the dark and I just I do it's this I just create this sort of ritual and I always the first thing I do when I get outside I look at the stars I feel very grounded by looking up in the sky anyway and then I go for a couple hours or until people start getting up and then uh, I'm usually getting my kids off to school and then I write again for another few hours And then, you know, kind of by 11, I'm starting to get a little, little twitchy. Uh, And then the afternoon, other than like housework and fitness and um, other sort of responsibilities, I usually focus on other writing related business. So it could be class prep, it could be course development, it could be um, like interviews, it could be, um, you know, working on sort of writing related articles, so that kind of stuff. And then we'll see. Usually later in the day, um, I have other obligations. Like I manage my daughter's ringette team right now. Uh, But if I find myself at the rink, sometimes I'll bring my laptop and I'll use that time to write or I try and read. Obviously, you need to be a a good reader to be a good writer. So I try and fit that in. Um, Yeah. So I just kind of it's an all day thing. But my most um, prolific time and the time that I really feel in it is, is the early, early morning. And then the morning when my family is gone.
1: Agreed. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I uh, Yeah. The darkness in the winter, it's like a cocoon, right?
0: Yes. And in terms of prioritizing, like I never had the issue where I had all these multiple deadlines before. So that was certainly something I had to adjust to because usually we don't have deadlines. We're just hoping someone wants to take our work. And so <laughs> no one's, you know, breathing down your neck saying, get that manuscript done. Uh, in this case, I did have to really work on, okay, what's the, you know, you know, you just, get, you keep a calendar like you would in any other job where it's like, okay, this one's due first or, but what trips me up sometimes is like, you know, the the things that you did not foresee, like uh, an interview or, um, you know, someone's commissioning you to write a piece or you're asked to present at something. And then you're like, oh, can I fit this in my schedule? How will this, you know, impact everything else I have planned over the next few weeks? Um, and learning to say no has been important but hard because usually we want to take all the opportunities because they are few and far between so I've had to say no to to some things um, just to kind of get through and um, yeah it's like anything else you have a very kind of fluid calendar and, and I just you have to be kind of willing to be flexible
1: I guess yeah that that was going to be my next question like how uh rigid you are with your schedule but it sounds like you have a good balance between being rigid but flexible yeah saying yes but saying no and mm-hmm. weaving in how do you weave in your self-care time um well i i exercise every day that is like critical
0: not just to my writing process but just again as as a human being um it kind of helps with my, my mental health, obviously physical health too. So that's one thing I'm committed to that. I will like, I have to exercise. I will exercise. That's just, it's part of it. Um, and I'm very, very protective of my morning time. So, you know, which means at nighttime is how I protect my morning time. So I will tell my kids, like, don't come to me at nine thirty, and, you know, and unload which is hard because that's when teens often want to talk so sometimes you know you have to be flexible <laughs> if they're in crisis or they have a question or they just want to talk you know I want to be there you obviously to listen so but you know they know now at this point like that mom taps out around 9 30 and so if you need me I'm on deck until then and then I need to get to sleep so that's when it becomes difficult like if I have a late soccer game for example and it you know I don't get home till 1030. And then I'm like, Ugh, like, how am I going to get up the next morning? So um, I've had to give myself some grace and to be flexible, because if I get up and I'm exhausted, I'm not going to write well anyway. So giving myself permission on those days, if I need to sleep in, you sleep in. Um, you know, like this weekend, I had a lot of momentum on, momentum on the project I'm working on, but I had six ring games over three days, plus volunteer shift. And then there's like the regular things like laundry and cooking dinner and grocery shopping. So you know, giving myself permission to let real life happen um, isn't is important. But the, the other thing I I kind of treat sacred is is my critique group. I have a group. We're just a small group of three. We meet every two weeks, and that's also my like no one book anything during that time. I really need that time. I need to connect with those other writers, and so um, just yeah, those are the times that I'm I'm not I'm not
1: flexible about. How did you find your critique partners?
0: Um, I started in a larger group that I was invited to uh, back in probably 2014. Um, I had met Leanne Shortliff at WordFest. We were on a panel together and she invited me into her group uh, along with another writer named Judith Pond. And we were both kind of on trial. Um, Judith had been looking for a group and she had approached Brad Summer, who was in the group at the time. It was a larger group.
1: Okay, just a quick aside. In case you didn't know, Leanne Shirtliff is the author of Don't Lick the Minivan, The Change Your Name Store, and other fun, hilarious books. Judith Pond writes poetry as well as literary fiction. And Brad Summer's book, Extinction, ironically, is in my queue as the next book that I want to read.
0: And we were both sort of invited to kind of try out because you know, you obviously have to connect, you have to um, have similar sort of views on critiquing and um, be able to contribute, but also be able to take away from the group. And so we both got in, which was awesome. And I worked with that group, a large group for a few years. And eventually, you know, things started to change. Some members Left uh, either because they were writing in a different genre that was no longer covered in that group, or they no longer needed the group. It they'd kind of outgrown it, or they just had moved on to something different, or just worked in a different way. And and the dynamic changes too, because there were, like people would kind of come and go, and then sometimes it wouldn't be as it wouldn't work as well. So we kind of disbanded as a larger group, and then uh, myself and Paulo da Costa, who who had been invited into the group and Judith Pond we still found that we were sending stuff out to each other we we kind of still needed it and so eventually i think it was during the pandemic we reconnected just the three of us and it had been an evening one but for me that didn't work anymore because again my kids were at an age where we were out of the house doing sports and other activities so we just moved to a daytime group and then that transitioned nicely online obviously during the pandemic and um, we've stayed together and we got really greedy now because in the old group, when there was like six or seven members, you could only do 10 pages. Well, now we can submit 30 or 40 pages because there's just the three of us. And it's just done so much for my writing in terms of like, I can now predict like, Oh, Paula's going to mention this and Judith is going to say that. And so, um, it, it helps you kind of reshape your work and almost polish it before you send it. But, um, yeah, that's, it's just one of those, again, trial and error. I had other writing groups over the years that, you know, became more social and we had very strict rules in our group. You have like a five minute check-in, that's it. And then you go to work and that, that, that's what worked for me because, you know, there's other opportunities to be social, but I wanted to be in a critique group where the focus was really on making everyone in the group a better writer. And it's great. Like we've all sort of been published. We've all kind of um, elevated each other. And um, Paulo writes in all genres. He writes literary fiction. He writes poetry. He writes, he can write spec fic. He writes short stories, flash fiction. Judith was a poet first also writes literary fiction. Um, So we really complement each other because, you know, a poet can teach you a lot about language, yeah. uh, you know, you know, or someone writing spec fic might be better sort of at plotting or continuity issues in a way that I might not be. So um,
1: it's good. I'm still on the hunt for the right critique group. <laughs> That's me, right? Like it's, I feel that it's so valuable, but you have to find the right one.
0: Hundred percent. Yeah. And you have to be OK to leave a group or say when it no longer works for you, because sometimes it's just you outgrow it or your needs change um, or like anything like a group can just become stagnant or if you can predict what everyone's going to say before they've even seen your work, you know, because it gets kind of tiresome, then it's, it's definitely time to move on, but it is, it's a challenge. And it's one of the questions I get asked a lot from emerging writers and newer writers, because they're just desperate. And it does take a long time. It's like dating. You have to really click with that person. You have to have sort of, you have to know what you want from that group. You know, some people are still at a point where they might just want praise or they just need to speak and not Take anything sort of in, um, so I always try to tell people, you know, the, the more you're involved in the community, the more writing uh, writing events you go to, the classes you take, you know, the drop in programming, the more likely you're going to start meeting and connecting with people. And I always encourage people in class, like, okay, you guys, write in a similar style, or you're really connected over this particular piece, you know, carry on outside the class, and 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 so yeah, a lot of. Of my former students have now found themselves in these groups because, you know, taking these courses and getting involved in the community.
1: How did you get into teaching courses?
0: I waited a long time before I started teaching. And I'm very happy that I waited a long time before I started teaching because I think um, just, you know, being a published author isn't necessarily doesn't necessarily qualify you to teach how to write a book. And yet at the same time, sometimes taking an MFA and not being published also doesn't necessarily mean you can teach how to write a book. I didn't know how to write a book when I wrote a book. So if I had, if someone had asked me to teach a novel course after roost, I would be like, I don't know, I just wrote some stuff down. And, you know, I really didn't know what I was doing on a craft level. Um, I had taken some writing courses. I had gone through Humber College. So it's not like I hadn't completely you know, abandoned craft altogether. Um, but I certainly didn't have a traditional background going into writing. In fact, the very first book launch I ever went to was my own, which is like freaks people out, but it's true. I came from a different world. I was in marketing. That's where my education is in. I, was, I did a BCOM. Um So yeah, I didn't have anything to teach after Roost. And then I learned obviously a little bit more through the figs and then through, um, Writing the Hill. So I think I was probably a good three books in and a lot of shorter creative nonfiction and fiction published before I felt like I could offer something to people. Um, and then I was working at the time at the Alexandra Writer Center, which was just doing some programming. And eventually I started creating courses. Um, and they were the courses that I wished I had at the beginning. And that's really the you know, what drives my teaching. And part of that is is before you even get to the craft of writing, it is knowing the sort of uh, more complicated side of writing, the darker side of writing, the, you know, this, this whole idea that um, a, a writing career isn't linear, that, you know, just because you get your first published doesn't mean the next six are going to get published and really being honest with people about the expectations. And it's a hard thing to tell people you could do everything right and still fail. Because it's like, oh, you know, or you say, you know, oh, okay, so everyone here is writing a novel. Well, only three of every 100 novels gets even finished, let alone published. Or you start talking about the response rates from agents or you start talking about how I've got two books out that won awards or were shortlisted for a national award and I can't get my third book published. And that would really you could see the initial like, oh, my gosh, like just the color drain from people's faces. But the people that have heard that message from me are the people I see now getting published because they knew that it was going to be hard. They knew that there was going to be times where they wanted to give up, but they knew also that, you know, you could sort of keep going when you, you know, new writers that you need to find that combination between encouraging them, but also helping them have realistic expectations of what that looks like. And I'm glad because it, it are, it's those people now that are writing me to say, okay, I just got my first piece published in the Globe and Mail after 10 tries, because they might've given up if they hadn't known that that was normal. And that was a normal part of the journey, or, you know, they finally are getting a memoir published or, or whatever it is. And that to me, um, feels like I'm doing something right on the teaching front as well as really, um, Being open and honest about my own process and how there is not necessarily a right or wrong way, but, you know, here's some information and then you kind of tailor it to your own um, style, your own process, um, but also trying to help people not ignore craft entirely too, because a lot of people just go into writing Thinking because they told someone a good story and they laughed at a party that they are a writer. And it's like there's this is, these are different skill sets. Oral storytelling and writing a book are completely different. So I'm also a real stickler for for craft and um trying not to let people kind of jump over that part to get to the end. You know, so many people are interested in publishing before they even know how to write a sentence. So really kind of going back and and I I always say it's a long game publishing. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yes.
1: What do you love about teaching?
0: Ah, uh, well, it's certainly rewarding and fantastic when someone shares news, and I get like I had, I think, two years in a row, I had people in my writing contest-worthy short creative nonfiction long list for the CBC Canada Writes Nonfiction Prize wow. two years in a row from that class, and that's super awesome. Um, I have people, you know, telling me they got their first piece published from something they'd workshopped in class. So getting that type of news, I had an author the other day just get a huge book deal with Atria, a big press for her memoir. And she's one of those people that I just, I knew it would happen at some point, And she just didn't give up and kept grinding and kept getting better and working her manuscript. So that's certainly rewarding. Um, yeah, I would say for sure. Or just, just when... Um, when you see someone have a moment live in class where they figure something out uh, because of something you have taught is pretty spectacular. So I had this this one uh, woman who was writing a piece of creative nonfiction about uh, her complicated relationship with her cottage, and it was quite it was quite funny. It was but it was kind of moody and dark. And she talked about this cottage, and it was you know it could either be a place of real kind of comfort, but it also just because of the the physicality and the location. It also could be uh, not a nice place. And she would find herself storming away from it. And as we were in the class, she was like, and she realized that she sort of does that with the relationships in her life. Oh, wow. So The fact that she was able to make this connection with her cottage to her relationships and seeing it happen, kind of unfold over zoom and she had this kind of moment was just really, really cool. And and the awesome thing is that piece went on to get published in the Globe and Mail, and it's exactly what her goal was. And so, yeah, those moments, I think, are the best. is when someone just, you you teach them, you give them things to think about, and then they either write you next week or they come back and they're like, I totally know now how to fix my manuscript, or I know what I was doing wrong. Because that's what it was for me. It was taking my manuscript... After all these years of writing books and just like, then having the rejection of my third novel and saying like, just tell me what I'm doing wrong, how, you know, and, and then once that was pointed out and then knowing how to fix it was how I was able to move forward, improve my craft and just the entire process has changed. So I love seeing that when it happens to a student.
1: Yeah. It's important to understand that rejection isn't meant to hurt, but if you you have to use it as an opportunity to improve your craft. (laughs) And it's almost more of this. It's
0: more of writing than getting published. Like if you wait the two, you know, there's way more rejection than there ever will be acceptance. It's just so as soon as you really understand that, that that's helpful. And I remember, I think it was Debbie Willis had said, I don't want to, I shouldn't say her because I don't know if it was her, but someone had said when they were in a creative writing class at at a university level, um, their professor had challenged them to send out they challenged them to see who would get published the most by the end of the year. So they were encouraged, obviously, to send off their their short stuff. And in the end, the student that had the most people pieces published also had the most rejected pieces. So that was sort of I always kind of think about that. It's like, you have to, you know, keep shooting because you don't know which one is going to take. Um, yeah, that, that's the odds are, are likely not in your favor. Um, but you also have to look at, you know, like I did, why is it getting rejection? If if I am doing the same thing over and over again and it's continually being rejected, then maybe it is me or the writing or the book or the project. And you have to really look at that because sometimes that's the whole conundrum. We don't know why. We don't really know why a piece is rejected, even if there's some feedback, sometimes it's specific, sometimes it's sometimes it's just subjective and it's one person's opinion. For example, I have a, a short story that was long, long listed for the Commonwealth short story prize, huge prize, huge number of entrants. So to get on that long list was, was a super cool achievement. I can't get it published anywhere. Can't get it published. So I can long list in this massive international contest with, with great, you know, and then can't, you know, or again, the Crow Valley Karaoke Championships couldn't find a publisher in Canada. And yet had multi had multiple interests from the US. So it you just yeah. you don't know. It's yeah. and that's what makes it difficult because you're like, how do I tinker with it? Do I rewrite it? Is it this is it the or is it just is it just not good enough? Like sometimes early on it's the work's not good enough. And I've done it. I've I've submitted work that was being submitted before. I should have.
1: I, I think a I no, a no it could be it should be interpreted as a not right now. And it could be not right now because it's not right for the publication or not right now because your story is not ready. Exactly. And and sometimes it's just, you know, it,
0: it could be that yours is brilliant, but, you know, that publisher had just accepted a similar style of manuscript or they just took a collection of short stories or they had a similar theme or, you know, I had um, the the, the book that I have coming out, um, Takedown it went really high up in Scholastic USA, which was like, well, you know, that would have been fantastic. Yeah. And the editor, the acquisitions editor absolutely loved it. Um, there is a, a girl wrestler in it. So there is like a theme of combat sports or combat sports or, right and she's like, I know this is way more than a story about that. It's a familial story. It's romance. It's all these other things, family drama um, and an illness. And but it got to marketing. And that's where that particular book was kibosh, because they said, well, we just did a book uh, with a with a combat, you know, I think like a, someone another martial arts plot, and it didn't sell well. So even though, you know, it was really love and, and beautiful, like lovely, lovely um, rejection from the acquiring editor, she's she just adored the book. But in the end, it came down to a marketing decision. And that is what it is sometimes. It's, right. it's a decision. And we it's hard to separate our art from the business side of things. But at the end of the day, it is. And we have to be mindful of both sides.
1: You said that you get reader emails still about Roost. Like, what do people tell you in their emails? I'm so
0: curious. Oh, sometimes they tell me it's like the like, you know, they read books that people say are funny but they actually genuinely laughed out loud because we all say, oh, I laughed out loud, but did you really? <laughs> so they will tell me I really laughed out loud. Um, sometimes they, they again, it's that identifying with the humanity of the characters. So um, one of the most memorable, and this was actually in person, it wasn't an email, but someone had come up to me and in roost the mother who has passed, was a big fan of Stomp and Tom Connors. And this woman came up to me, she was a widow and she said her husband was a huge fan of Stomp and Com- Tom Connors. And every time she took him to cancer treatment, they would play his music. It was the only thing that kind of calmed him before and coming home. So she's telling me this and she's just crying. And, you know, so she just really, you know, connected with that sort of the whole grief aspect of the book. Um, <laughs> someone came up to me once, assuming that I had a brother who was an asshole and said, don't worry, my brother's an asshole too. So you know they're obviously they it, they take it personal. They find something personal in it. I had a lot of single moms um, say to me, you know, you captured that so well. I'm a mom of you know three and a three three boys or whatever, and and you you know you helped me think back and you made me feel like I did a hell of a job, you know. Or um, I had a gosh, I had a, a client once who through personal training and she lost her parents back to back in a very short period of time. And she had like little young children at the same time. And she's like that book. It just made me feel that I was doing okay. And that seems to be the overarching theme of the feedback that I get from my books is simply, I felt good after reading this, even if it was hard, even if I couldn't necessarily identify, I felt a sense of hope or that I was going to be okay, or that I was doing okay, or that I could be okay. And I think because of, you know the world. And I, I don't want to say the world today because the, the world has always been pretty awful. It's, it's hard being human. If you, if you read history at all, it's, it's horrible. It's horrible from the beginning. It's still horrible and it will continue to be horrible. So anything that kind of can make you feel like you're doing okay in this, in this lifetime, I think um, is what readers respond to. So that's what I, what I kind of get most of the responses from is, is just that sense of okay, this made this book made me feel like I'm okay. You know, yeah, even, this, when, even when like, even when there's a dumpster fire around me, I'm right? still driving, I'm still here. I'm moving on. Yeah.
1: yeah. That's much more eloquent than I would have said, would have put it. I would just say life gets shitty and you're going to yeah. be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Well, yeah. there you go. That's, that's yeah. probably a more concise way to say it. <laughs> now, speaking of dumpster fires, <laughs> which made me think of trash, which makes me think of the hill. Yes. And uh, you have, I love this story. I heard you tell the story, about where the idea for the hill came from, mm-hmm. you were on a trip somewhere.
0: Hmm. Yes. I was on a trip. Um, I was performing at a show as an acrobat in Virginia beach a long time ago. And our driver, we were driving down this interstate and I remember looking outside the window and As we were going by, there were these really oddly shaped hills that to me did not look like they were naturally occurring or or sort of organic uh, formations. And so the driver explained that they called those trash mountains and that they were, in fact, landscaped garbage dumps like the old dump multiple on the side of the road. And I'd love to be able to pinpoint the actual place. I can't, I've, I've looked on maps, can't figure out where it is at all. And you'd never really know. Um, But once I told that story, it was amazing how many people are like, oh yeah, they did that to the dump in Manitoba and blah, 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 blah. And a lot of this, so obviously this seems to be um, a a thing that we do. We remediate the land and just kind of landscape over it. But I just thought it was, you know, that was sort of a horrible thing to do too, to know that we just, you know, just to hide it by you know, putting a tablecloth over it, essentially. <laughs> so yeah, that kind of became the a little bit of the genesis. There's so many things that went into that book, and what I was trying to do, and what I started out doing, and how it evolved, and what, you know, but I just love this idea of these girls living on this isolated dump, and having to sort of, you know, dig it up and use the stuff they found to 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 build a home and build a life from, because of course, you know, we know there's things like fast fashion, and in consumerism, and buy, 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 and buy more, and buy cheap, and, and you know, it's um, they're the whole environmental thing of it. But it also just makes for a really interesting setting. Yeah.
1: And, did you always plan for it to be a trilogy?
0: Kind of yes and no. Um, I did not plan out these three books as a trilogy and said, OK, in book one, this is going to happen. Book two, is this is going to happen in book three. I had a rough idea of what I wanted to do, but it is it, part of thinking of it as a trilogy actually tripped me up in terms of when it actually came down to writing book two, because if you look at traditional trilogies, they're very plot focused. They have specific things that kind of have to happen and there's rules. Um, And that's not what this book is about. It is not a traditional trilogy per se. This is, uh, the story is much more character driven. Um, It is, it's dystopian, but it's kind of literary. It's, it's a, and it also, I wanted it to be an adventure. That's part of the reason I, I wrote the book is I was looking for sort of an adventure story for girls. A lot of the great adventures are are reserved for boys. Okay. You know, they're boy protagonists, they're the ones that get to like run around barefoot and be wild and, and, you know. And I thought, where are those books for girls? And that was loosely because my oldest was, you know, had jumped from like rainbows and unicorns straight to the Hunger Games. I'm like, there's got to be sort of somewhere in between there. Although mine ended up being more on the YA scale as opposed to sort of middle grade, which I had initially intended uh, just because it was sort of dark and got darker as I wrote. So um, I really had to step away from looking at the trilogy in a traditional trilogy sense, which is usually big. And we think Hunger Games or Divergent series, like these big sort of blockbusters and, and go, no, That's not the world that I've built. In fact, in book two, I've almost, although the world continues to expand, in some ways the story is smaller because it's really about this one girl trying to figure out the truth in a world that is absolutely confusing, which can be resonant with any person growing up today.
1: Yeah. And the the truth, uh, the truth as it emerges in the hill was beautifully done
0: oh thank like, you oh. and it's so much it's been so much fun writing yeah. the second book because there's sort of you know she continues to sort of learn more and you know it's, it's it's just interesting from a timing perspective when we talk about truth like oh my lord like it's so hard to even know now what is like right? what's true, what's not what's true what's not and, and how we get that information and how we process it and how it's fluid and how you know as the world changes those truths can change sort of with it so yeah it's been really fun to explore that and explore how um you know that her newfound quasi freedom is impacted by all she had learned up until that point and really trying to figure out you know is the colony, are these rules, were they really designed to protect her or are they actually doing the opposite because she's been you know, kind of kept um, within these, within the physical tiny world of the hill and within the confines of the rules. But um, that's one of the, 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 the biggest paradoxes of parenting an adolescent is they have to take risks, they have to face danger, they have to face predators in order to become better adults but if they face them too much they also not make might not make it through adolescence so that's certainly what ren continues to struggle with in in book 2 is you know this whole how how far do i push the risk taking to make better choices to learn the truth to know how to become a better adult and a leader versus how do i not just put myself in danger and you know walk off a cliff or or, or do something Really stupid. That is irreversible.
1: <laughs> I love how the how the hill started as middle grade and evolved into YA. It's just another reminder that sometimes we are not in control
0: of how no, the story rolls out. Like, no, it's middle grade. That was my intention, and they're like, no, it's dark. It's not. It's like, but it, but I could like wind back, and then it was really hard too because my protagonist was fourteen, and that is an awkward age. Again, it breaks all these rules. They say never. Yeah. Let's we almost don't shouldn't have a protagonist that's fourteen because we know that younger readers read up you know, so, but she's not quite old enough, but she's kind of too young to be a traditional YA. So it's really kind of in this weird space. But then I find that it has skewed younger. It's younger. I get like more feedback from like sort of 12 year old girls, which makes sense, uh, you know, because yeah. they're kind of reading up, but they're not reading way up. And then like older women or middle-aged women, kind of like I yeah. wish, there's not a lot of adventure stories, even for us, right? Like true. We don't like there. Where are the women going off on the great adventures? You know, especially like I don't know, like from like forty and up. So I, you know, I could see why there's a little, a little piece of, um, yeah, a, a, a section of the market who is intrigued by this book who might not have been initially the target audience. Yeah
1: how how do you get through those writing spaces where it's not feeling good. Oh, I will just, I just have been through this.
0: So I rewrote, I have rewritten the second book of the Hill series. I'm on my third time, third time whole book. Yeah. And part of it's because I did not trust my instincts and I did not follow my process and I got caught up because Again, I had sort of in my mind, I kind of knew where I wanted to go with book two. And I had started it a long time ago before the hill even came out. And then I got sidetracked and did wrote other, wrote other books and did other projects. And then when it came back to writing this one again, I thought, well, perhaps I should go online and, and read some rules about trilogies. And lo and behold, everything I had done was wrong according to how to write a trilogy. But I had forgot to reconcile that my book is not a traditional trilogy in the sense of it being this big sort of Hollywood blockbuster. It's not that type of story. So right away, but I followed the advice. I was like, oh, well, you can't start here. You have, to, you have to flash forward in time and you have to kill this person and bring a new character. So I started doing all these things that I was told to sort of do following it online, which led to a good book, but not the right book. And so I had some good feedback from, from my publisher. And again, same thing. There was nothing. They loved the plot. It was, it moved at all this energy, but I kind of lost a little bit of the interiority of the character. I lost a little bit of what made the first book special. So then I was like, okay, I could rework this or I could totally rewrite it. So I'm like, I'm going to rewrite it because I have a higher, I have a high standard for myself. And I thought I want this to be the best book and not anything, but, so then I wrote it again went down that same road. I need it bigger, we're going for the whole universe now, you know? And it was a writer friend of mine. It was Brad summer. And he's like, you know, I think you're like, you're writing the wrong second book. That's not this type of series. And he said, if anything, he said, you should be making it smaller. And I was like, Oh my gosh, he's totally right. So I went back and looked at my publisher notes for the first one. And then I, I wrote it a third time. I'm like, I'm doing it again because I wanted to get it right and I and I was able to see how I was sort of misled down these other tangents by thinking it was something it was not and as soon as I recognized that I just went back to my regular process and it has unfolded but it was it's very difficult to write a book three times
1: yeah you know? yeah and it
0: long and to think of all that time and and I have another project that I'm like I'm working on that I, that I had a grant for. And so it's really difficult to balance the two things because that's got to be the priority is this new piece of that old fiction that's coming. But really just going back and making sure that I am happy and that I have written to a standard that I expect and that my publisher
1: deserves. Lots to think about in that, mm-hmm. <laughs> in yes. that answer. Yes,
0: yes. Yeah. So it's, again, the, the takeaway is trust your process if yeah. your process is working and my right. process is working for me so i should never have meddled and really understand your work and i my one of the challenges i've always had is i've never been able to fit into a specific genre you know some people will say my work's commercial sometimes it will be literary and oftentimes it's the opposite it's too literary for this market but too commercial for this one <laughs> um it's it's literary but it's dystopian is that a thing can it be can you write you know something that's genre but has language and, and more attention, like, cause that's probably the most lyrical or poetic book that I've read. And that's at least seem, seems to be in the reviews. So when you sort of straddle these genres or you blur the lines of, of what you're writing, it makes it difficult even more difficult because then the rules, if there are rules, they change with that they become a little bit more blurred so I was here I was trying to apply something more formulaic that you would see in a big trilogy or a more traditional genre trilogy and I was trying to sort of you know outfit that on a completely different style um, in in what the hill series is and so uh, it was a huge learning curve and I'm and I'm glad I went through it because the last couple books I've been like Poof! They've just been really easy and I love it. And the flow's there. And that's the biggest thing I know when it's right. And as soon as Mm. I lose that feeling that it's right, I usually end up going back and deleting whatever I had just written. Sometimes it's 500 words. Sometimes it's 5,000 because I'm like, no, I, I, this, and I will go back and read from the beginning and I can pinpoint, this is where it went wrong. And I have to, and I'll start from that point and rewrite until
1: I get it right. So you, you mentioned that you had moved off from your process. What is your process?
0: Oh, okay. So it's, Still
1: been, a little different. it's been a little bit different for each
0: book um, in terms of like what that initial kernel or that sort of seed is. Um, for karaoke, for example, I wasn't even writing anything at that time or I was writing a different book. I can't even remember what I was writing at the time. And my friend invited me to watch her sing karaoke She was trying out to be the Canadian representative for the World Karaoke Championships and and they were being held in Calgary. And I walked into this room and there was a, a guy dressed on stage as like a shepherd like someone out of the nativity scene, I'm like, okay, this is not the karaoke that I'm familiar with. You know, I, my, I had done karaoke like at the university bar and I was mostly a backup dancer because I cannot sing. So I just remember looking around going, wow, there is a whole subculture here that I was not aware of. It's absolutely fascinating. It was inclusive. There were people, you know, there was a guy in a wheelchair. There was like, it was diverse and it was very supportive. And I thought, wow, like, karaoke is somehow managed to be this great equalizer and it's weird and I love it. And there's so much happening around me. And so I literally dropped everything I was writing and started writing that book just from that Wild. walking in and seeing this karaoke. Um, you know, and then again with, with cock, I just knew how the story was going to start. I knew that the dad was going to get remarried and ew, like if your father is remarrying before you've even, you know, like I, so I knew there was stuff there. I usually, um, and then actually with the book that I'm writing now, this adult contemporary fiction, my husband and I are big fans of the show alone. And we'd gone back and watched season one because it came available on prime or something. And there was a line in it where the they were interviewing the 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 very first original winner of the series alone, which is a a show where you have to go out and you've got like ten items and you have to survive for as long as you can in the elements in a harsh climate. And he said, you know, he was talking about something. His friend said that we are survival machines. And right away, I'm like, that is the title of a book. And I know exactly what's going to happen. And so I'm writing sort of an urban version of what it means to survive in the corporate world called survival machines. So the genesis of each book has always been a little bit different. Or like I said, with the hill, I'm driving down, I'm seeing these garbage dumps that have been landscaped and thinking, "Ooh, that is very interesting setting. So some are plot, some are setting, some might be character. Um, But usually I just kind of sit down and I write intuitively, but my real key in terms of combining craft and some sense of plotting with that intuitive practice is to think simply about what the character wants versus what they need. And usually the conflict comes from those two things, not being compatible. And so the want, Uh, Is usually something tangible. It's something easy. It's something very obvious, and it's something that the character knows they want. They want to win karaoke. They want to get out of prison. You know, they, um, whatever it is. And then there's this need, and that's really the issue. And it's often masking as the one. So then the question is, why do they want to win karaoke so bad? What does it represent? What is it a metaphor for? And then I play with those two things. And that's one of the things that became really fun in karaoke is to have all of those needs and wants kind of clash. So what happens when you have two characters that want the same thing, you're, you're automatically, you have conflict and automatically you create something for the reader to go like, Oh, who do I root for? And, you know, I kind of want her to win because of this situation, but but I kind of want him to win too, because he needs a win. And, you know, you start kind of looking at that. So that's, that is essentially what I did. And, and the first book I wrote where I looked just at character as plot was the one that's coming out uh, Takedown, uh with DCB in 2024. And I simply looked at what does my character want? And it was like, okay, she wants an NCAA scholarship. What does she need? She needs to know that she can't save her father who has ALS. And so the closer she gets to her want, sometimes the further they get away from their need and just playing with those two things, just, it's just the conflict is naturally there. The tension is naturally there. The obstacles, you don't have to think about it. It's just every chapter, what does she want? And you move that character towards trying to get what they want.
1: Okay, hey, so if, if I if I could, mm-hmm. uh, if, if this wasn't an, an audio file, I'd be standing up giving you a standing ovation because that oh. right there is the kernel of every good story, right? Yes, yes, yeah. and it took me a
0: long time to figure it, and that's yes. exactly why, I didn't teach because I knew I could not teach that back then because I did not know what I was doing. And I did not know that, but that has been the key to every successful thing I've written since. And why I think I've been able to get published more uh, consistently now is because I've really figured out how to tell a story. It comes down to story. And that's the frustrating thing because you go to these conferences when they you get a speaker comes up and they're like, hey, how do you get published? That's always the question. And they always say, tell a really good story, but everyone thinks they have told a really good story. So what does that actually mean? And that's what I had to learn almost retroactively. I got by early on in my career because I know I can write funny and it's a hard thing to do, but I, that's the part that comes easy to me. I can write dialogue. Well, like I can do a lot of things really well. I can write some good sentences. And I think that helped me early on in the areas maybe uh, where I was less you developed, which would be sort of plot development and things like motif and the the higher level craft stuff. Um, But once I really just could hone in on, on that whole idea of what the character wanted, because it's taught, it's taught wrong. Like people always like, what's the character's motivation? And you know what I mean? I never was taught how those things are intrinsically linked. And, and so I would think of plot like, well, perhaps I should have them drive off a cliff. Yes, I will do that. And then I'd write, but it made no sense. So I was just writing these plot points that had absolutely nothing to do and they could be funny or they might've moved the story forward in some capacity or it could have worked with the character's story but not in that intimate intrinsic way that it should. So that to me was, was a real game changer and it was Sandra who took me through that. And that's, like I said, when she looked at my manuscript and she's like, okay, like we're on page 100 and whatever it is, I still don't even know what Brett wants. She goes, I get it. I get a sense of it here. Okay. He kind of, you know, he's trying to be a little bit like Dale. He wants to be, but she's like, I didn't get that until this point. She's like, yeah, that has to be established way earlier. So I was like, okay. So then it became kind of fun because I went back through that story and I took what I had intuitively done and then rewrote it with purpose and intent. And that's the name of one of my writing courses, courses, which is novel intent. And it's about doing this at the beginning. You don't necessarily have to plot everything out. You don't have to necessarily have an outline, but even loosely playing with this idea of want and need, it, it's enough. It, it can be enough that you can still write intuitively. You can let that magic kind of happen that you didn't necessarily plan or didn't think, but it's grounded just in the simplicity of, of knowing what the character wants and what they what they need. And why? Then you dig deeper. Why does he need this? Oh, because he was abandoned when he was a child or he was abused when he like, you know, and you
1: start filling in the backstory. Yep. Ali, oh. I'm so grateful for your time. Uh, um, especially that I, I know that this interview time fell in your writing time. So I appreciate the sacrifice and it means okay. a lot to me.
0: Yes. Yes. And thank you so much for just for giving me the opportunity to tell my story because it is, it's different. I think from, from some writers in terms of we all get, get there in a different way. And I think right. that's so critical is that people get to see, like there's a million routes to publication and I can only share what worked for me and what didn't or the the mistakes I made or the expectations that I had that were ridiculous, you know, in hopes that, you know, someone doesn't do the same kind of thing. So no, it was certainly fun to talk about and uh yeah, I'm so thankful. I'm thankful for, for being on the podcast. And ah, I appreciate it. You.
1: Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of What Were You Thinking? You can learn more about Allie by visiting her website, com. That's A-L-I-B-R-Y-A-N.com. If you want to check out what's going on in my world, I invite you to visit my website, danagoldstein.ca. And if you want to get a peek inside my head from time to time, actually, it's on a weekly basis, I now have a Substack that is free for all with uh, an option to upgrade, of course. Uh, I just have to visit danagoldstein.substack.com and you can see what I'm sending out to the world every single Sunday morning. Once again, thanks for giving me your ears and happy reading hey it's me still thanks for sticking around to the end because i've got like a little extra snippet that i think you might enjoy that's awesome oh my god so many dirty jokes
0: i know i'm (laughs) trying to avoid them i'm like I'm gonna think of something that's like non-perverted to sign in people's books right because what else do
1: you say with with cock yeah like why that title like i mean i mean obviously it's connected to roost it's connected to roost and of course
0: cock is the french word for rooster and the book takes place in Paris. And there is a couple lines in there where the dad is kind of, you know, has the sort of bravado or this sort of cockish behavior. Yeah. So it really did kind of work for me. And I thought it was kind of funny. It's bold, it's yeah. a bit different. It's, I guess, provocative if you can say it out loud without blushing, which I rarely can. Uh, and it's funny cause no one else wants to say it around me. And I'm like, it's a rooster. It's just a friggin' French rooster.